Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Let's have a round, warm round of applause for Alan McDonald. Hi. As most of you know, I'm Alan McDonnell, and uh, I wrote this book, this new book. It's called Punk Elegies, and it's kind of about what it says. You know, I, uh, like they say, I, I kind of spent some time in the punk rock thing, 77, 78, 79, and 80. I collected a bunch of stories about it. And then uh, eventually I had a discussion with this guy named Brendan Mullen, who I'd had a big falling out with. I hadn't talked to him in 20 years, and I spoke to him at some kind of going-away party. And we both had the same feeling about this punk thing. We both felt really bittersweet about it. You know, we both had like, this kind of nostalgia that was kind of a painful nostalgia. And we both felt that it had gone like kind of a way we weren't happy with the way it went. But at the same time, it was like the favorite time of our life. And I realized that it wasn't just us, that a lot of people had that feeling. And that kind of <clears throat> propelled me more to, to, like I'd been collecting all these anecdotes, it propelled me more to try to get them together. And while I was doing that, like I would, I would talk to my wife about it, how I just started, what kind of things like it should shape up. And I was thinking, you know, there's got to be like some kind of like defining, like, like a unifying kind of aspect that we all had, the people that were there. There's like 100, 200 people. Like, what drew them all together? And she says, it was your anger. <laughs> and I'm like, thinking, oh, no, it wasn't that, you know, because it was like the, the plunger plick girls were not angry, you know. No, no, it's not angry. And she goes, no, really, it was your anger. And I, I don't think it was. She goes, it was the anger. And I'm like, <laughs> so that made me mad. <laughs> And I drove home, you know, we drove home in silence, and during that silent time, I was, I was thought about what was it that unified us all, and it came to me, and I was able to use that for this beginning. In 1977, we felt that we were pretty great. All of us did. This was before we even knew we were a we. Most of us were stumbling from our tragic teens into our terrible 20s. One-on-one, we might be toxic, strung out, slutty, unemployable, overprivileged, socially retarded, grandiose, needle-dicked, porky, pox-faced, boneheaded, delusional, depressed, and demented. We'd been rejected, we'd been ostracized, we'd been diagnosed. Still, each of us was pretty certain, deep down, of greatness, individually and suddenly as a group. At any moment, the world would be forced to acknowledge what we'd suspected all along. The secret was coming out. We were pretty great. One hundred or so of us, stoned and smashed, had been lured into an alley entry loft off of Pico Boulevard to witness the reinvention of rock and roll. It was May 28, 1977, the public debut of The Screamers. The event had been hyped as the first appearance of the future, an unprecedented future, a climactic, orgasmic future to change everything. Careers in magazines and record companies will come out of this night. The next few hours will spawn media empires that will be bought up by bigger media empires. People will become obnoxious millionaires. 
Not many people, but all of us will believe we are in the running. We had poignant cheekbones and pallor, straight leg trousers, pointy-toed shoes, salvage thrift store spike heels, animal prints, torn t-shirts, extra eyeshadow, sex lubis, hair gel, safety pins and cock rings as accessories. This crowd made pretty great out of pretty much nothing. Four of us arrived in an MG Midget, a car about the size of a bathtub. Johnny drove. The MG was his car. He had a history degree, a history of DUI arrests, and a mixed hillbilly American Indian heritage. His younger brother Larry rode shotgun and drank 151 rum. Larry's singing drowned out the cassette. Roxy Music, David Bowie, Grace Jones, all of them made secondary by Larry's blown out croon. Johnny turned the car at random and spilled his beer. We seemed to be lost. The wife and I made out in the cramped confines of the luggage space behind the midget seats. We were young, we were high, we'd been fighting earlier, and we were making up for lost time. Tommy, the wife, was 10 months ahead of me, 20 years of age in May of 1977. Lean, brunette, short cropped. She dressed like an updated heroine from a Ronette song. She had lowrider brothers and hidden razor blade attitude. Between them, between them, Tommy and a half dozen other girls who would just as soon spit at you as be flattered by you created the punk chic template that shows up so fresh and original to this very day. This is true. Ask anyone who was there. I liked looking at her. The world was a dead musical place in 1977. The glitter promises of Bowie and T-Rex had gone the way of my late teens with very little worthwhile following along. The trendiest young minds of the L.A. Basin were ready to blow out our brains from boredom and schmaltz. Patti Smith and the Ramones had flown in from New York, bringing signs of salvation. Even better, a two-chord defiance wafted over from England, the Sex Pistols, the Damned, the Clash. We saw pictures of these bands before we heard their songs. The pictures helped, but we needed something at home of our own. The screamers looked like they might be it. They strolled into a far corner of the loft. Like the Beatles, there were four of them, but with no guitar or other stringed instruments. They had two keyboard players, a drummer, and a singer. The musicians flexed and shrugged in front of a white wall, a wall decorated with larger-than-life photos of the screamers. Their hair was spiked and the jaws were clenched. The singer wore a white jumpsuit stitched together from plastic trash bags and tailored to his limbs by slimming strips of electrical tape. His synthesizer player shed a conservative suit jacket to reveal a blouse crafted from clear bubble wrap. Abruptly and abrasively, the music started. The screamers were more aggressive and louder than the who. Pictures show me standing in the front row, skinny, scowling, pasty white, dressed in faded black, transfixed. The face is 21 years old. It has a vacated stare of, of an obstinate child who refuses to answer the question of what it had been thinking to do such a thing. This is a face that has not been denied inclusion since grade four. If there was a chance of being blackballed or snubbed or passed over, then fuck off. This face won't stoop to jo join any clique that might reject it. The screamers were not in the business of rejection. The band was in no position to look down on that 21-year-old or any of the other faces straining eyeball to eyeball with the singer in those photos. There was no stage. The musicians cleared a space with their noise, with songs that sounded like we felt, undervalued, wronged, and arrogant about it all. Jarring, discordant, frenetic, words did the onslaught justice. The screamers were wise enough to keep the set short. 
The performance was like a hit of amyl nitrate. You took a huff and your head exploded for a minute. Then you wandered around with your mind blasted out, wondering what to do next. So, <laughs> so what a lot of people did next, of course, was join bands, form bands. I didn't do that. I um, like we moved to. Um, no, I did sign up. With, I, I hooked up with Slash magazine. I started writing with Slash. I moved to Venice from the Inland Empire, which was a good move. And then we moved to the Canterbury Arms Hotel in uh, Hollywood. And um, at this time, it was, there was a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. And uh, I described this in the book. There's a lot of scintillating prose. There's some, there's, some, <clears throat> there's some hot, sexy parts in here. I've been told they're very effective. But uh, I feel you're better off reading them at home alone or with uh, loved ones. <laughs> but, um, but I want to go to, you know, there's this, this, the word angel dust is in the subtitle. So I want to go to the, the angel dust section. <laughs> made a, you know, we made a lot of friends. Like the, we made a lot of friends. And one of this, the friends, his name was Black Randy. And you can, you can look him up on the internet and it'll give you like an, an un, it'll give you a picture of who he was, you know, his, his album. You can find his singles. Or it's all on YouTube and everything. But it doesn't really do him justice. Randy was probably... Like, like, he was probably the smartest guy there, you know, and he was definitely the funniest person I've ever met. And uh, everyone, anyone here who knew Randy can tell you a story of him making a huge imposition on them. He was just, he was really too much. Bigger than life guy. But, uh, you know, so here we are. So this is the first bit of Angel Dust Up. Don't ask me how, but I owned a car. So I was driving down to Norwalk with Black Randy as my passenger. Norwalk is a town 25 miles southeast of Hollywood, renowned for its mental hospital. <laughs> no one wants to be from Norwalk, and a sane person needs a compelling reason to go there. For Black Randy and me, the pool was angel dust. Angel dust, PCP, is a drug that you can't really explain its appeal. A few puffs or sniffs, and the PCP stuns every nerve ending in the body, sending back a distress message to the brain. <laughs> I am your body, and I am dead. <laughs> I am your body, and I have died. <laughs> the feeling of sitting trapped in death fades after six to eight hours, <clears throat> unless the user goes crazy. The high also brings a breakdown in physical coordination and an inability to form words with the tongue. Randy and I would go all the way to Norwalk chasing that experience. Freeway traffic kept snaring us. Crawling semis, hog lanes, and boxed in the family Ford. There was no way around the trucks, and they spat black air into our windshield. We were hot and grimy, and I had no money. Randy received SSI welfare payments, which was something like being wealthy. <laughs> so Randy was financing this Norwalk expedition. Open your mind to possibilities, he suggested. <laughs> Manifest the image of you driving to Norwalk and back without stopping at a gas station. Gas mileage is largely a function of driver's skill. Randy considered me slightly retarded. One reason for that was because I did not receive SSI, government subsidies for individuals who are ruled disabled due to mental instability. I kept watch for the next gas station and took that off ramp. I was smart enough to squeeze gas money out of Randy at the start of the journey rather than at the end. After pumping the gas, I lingered in the cashier's shack. 
Impatience was one of Randy's strong suits. He was losing his mind in the car. I had a few dollars of Randy's change, so I bought an ice cream bar and three beers. Back in the car, I cracked the beer and did not offer the others to Randy. <laughs> he sat speechless with rage. <clears throat> Pleased, I started the car. We had no map, and the directions we'd been given were abstract, so I drove aggressively. Forty minutes later, the Ford was overheating, and we'd overshot Norwalk. I, I pulled into another gas station. Randy demanded a justification for the stop. I'll go in and check our coordinates, I said. <laughs> the service area, unlike the Ford, was air-conditioned, a place made for loitering. My mission became vague. To be honest for a change, I had just wanted to be out of the car and away from Randy for a while. <laughs> I'd smoked the last of my weed prior to our departure, and his bickering had entirely worn away that high. <laughs> Randy barged into the service area. Get a look at him. He walked as if his entire crotch area was one big rash. <laughs> Fists clenched, jaws clenched, eyes tight with indignity and irritation. He zeroed in on the lady cashier. I judged her to be implacable and sedentary, and she proved me correct. We need the quickest way to Norwalk, shouted my passenger. The cashier wasn't from around there. She took in Randy's facial sweat and drifting eyes. She took in my shaky cigarette hand and wan simper. She wasn't even from the same hemisphere. You look for the Norwalk Hospital, she said. <laughs> for the withdrawal. So we, we, you know, we do get to Norwalk. We do get the angel dust. It's like all these you know, little difficulties, twists and turns. It's pretty good. I say it's pretty good. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's a weird thing with that stuff. It's like you blink your eyes and you're in another place. And I was back at home, I was back in my apartment with my wife at the time, who I'm calling Tommy in this book, and she had had a phone message, and A&M Records had called. And I had stolen this idea for guerrilla marketing from Black Randy and talked over A&M Records, and they were, they were going for it. And so they wanted to come to the Canterbury Arms the next day to talk about it. And so I guess, you know, we were in a celebratory mood, and, and uh, we went with this friend of ours, who in the book is called Viva. And if you've read this far, you're in love with Viva. She's like, you want to hang out with her? She's a fantastic person. Uh, so it was later, abruptly closer to daybreak. Tommy and Viva and I had gone for a drive. I know we had, because I was parking my car on Gower, south of Santa Monica Boulevard, with Tommy and Viva in the front seat beside me. We, squeezed, <coughs> excuse me, we squeezed through the side gate to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Jane Mansfield was in there, and Tyrone Power. Arms linked, three abreast, we slogged over the deep, wet grass, weaving among tombstones and grave markers. My shoes were waterlogged and ruined. All you heard was the croaking of the frogs that lived in the pond at the center of the park. Falling behind, I dropped flat on my back on the wet grass and let my clothes soak it in. The stars above, I knew they were light years away, but don't tell me that they weren't also in reach. I held two handfuls of stars, directing their heat and electrical currents down my arms to a storage chamber near my heart. I released the stars and let them go about their business. I propped myself on my elbows. Tommy and Viva danced among the graves, leaping like hopscotch ballet girls from nameplate to nameplate, landing on one foot and kicking down the other. My mind was calm, my body shivering and dew-soaked. My mind knew everything. The stars were in orbit, the planets were in orbit, and I fit in that orbit. 
the drugs had spun out of me like they always did. An abiding and breathable peace soaked through my clothes, drenched my hair, entered every pore, like a thick pre-dawn fog exhaled by all the friendly dead below us. Silhouetted in the waning night's light, Tommy, Viva, and I stood and stretched on the duet lawns. Life was going to be great with Tommy. We were going to be okay. We would do things and have things like normal people do. We would take road trips and stay in hotels and pay by credit card. <laughs> I would be in my right mind for my meeting with the record company people. When the record company people finished and left, my correct brain would remain behind. My right mind would be with me for the rest of my years. From here on out, until the end of time, the first day of which was only a sunrise away. So I probably don't need to tell you that like, there's a twist in that before that story ends. <laughs> Excuse me. And I've never worked for A&M Records. It's just, it's, uh, where do I go next from this? Oh yeah, here we go. I have this friend who's in a band, he's in a couple bands, very successful bands, and he told me that um, there's this perception like, that people like me, people who were there, like this very first wave of L.A. punk, the perception is that we're <clears throat> in to- we're not we don't accept anything that came afterward. Like we're we're not open to any of the bands that came afterward. Any of the, the like kind of the musical waves, LA musical waves that came after, that that we just reject them without even investigating them. And I have to admit, in my case, I'm a snob, and it's true. <laughs> and I think I can trace it to this next excerpt. <laughs> To give you some context, I'm on a date, a double dating, with my then wife and what the woman will call girl A. And I'd taken her wearing hats. Like I was wearing these hats, like the Jimmy Cliff hat, and the harder they fall, the harder they come. You know, that with the, it had a brim, kind of a little pimpy, like very floppy. And you can wear them many different ways. You can wear it like straight in the front with the brim snapped with the brim open, and you can wear it on the side. If you flip it around the back, it acts as a beret almost. So I arrived at the new mask because the old mask had closed I'm with my hat <laughs> and uh, with my wife and with girl A. What, is this, what page is this? Yeah. <laughs> the wife strode in fake suede tights and real lizard salvaged pumps. Girl A teetered on needlepoint heels, flaunting a lingerie set as outer garments under Apache fur. I was watching for it closely, but our grand entrance somehow slid away from me. I'm on my own out in the oil-stained concrete parking lot. I'm in a circle of hostile new kids, four penis-neck cutouts with uniform buzz cuts and bomber jackets. They're in a band, the Red Faction or China Army. Hundreds of these clenched-jaw idealists had showed up uninvited and, and slapped anarchist stickers onto their guitars. Who can keep track of their hardcore political masquerades? Swarms of kids 19 or 20 years old, and not a scrap of original or entire style, were mocking the 22-year-old innovators, calling us grandma and grandpa. (laughs) The guys ringing me were tall and lean and pinched in the face. They probably played junior varsity high school basketball. They pushed me, goaded me, elbowed me. This is what happens when a person, innocent, me, is too happy with himself. Some cluster of bitter tools full of testosterone and envy takes on the job of bursting my bubble. Who do you think they are? Who do you think you are? Shove. 
This is also rudimentary. Of course I had an answer. I think I'm nobody. You get that? Nobody. Try being nobody. One of them knocked the Jimmy Cliff flop hat off my head. I squatted to pick up my cap. While I was down there with my guard lowered, would have been a prime time to attack me. These guys looked at each other to determine which one would strike first. They failed to coordinate the assault, and I was back on my feet. What makes you special? Shove. Like I said, I explained, I'm nobody, and nobody is special, so that makes me special. Get it? <laughs> I functioned on an elevation well beyond their understanding. <laughs> what was I supposed to do, lower myself to take Blockhead seriously? This punk thing had started because we, we being me and the other people at the start of it, thought we were pretty great. Our feelings of greatness were purely unsubstantiated. No one had required anyone else to submit proof of greatness. <laughs> we had imagination, we had belief, we had faith and goodwill. We didn't have callow prigs setting requirements and demanding some standard of achievement. What makes me so special is self-evident, I explained, as if I were a black granny talking to stupid people. If I weren't so special, why would I act the way I do? They had their rebuttal. We don't like you. <laughs> These guys carried me from one to the other, but they had no real idea of fun. Any one of them could have dropped me with two punches, but it took all four to brave their amusement. I dug in. I would stand my ground, whatever that ground might be. I would grin and endure my teeth being kicked in, if that's what it took, to prove my point, to exercise the fundamental principle, to defend a stack of values and beliefs that I could not be bothered to put into words and that might well be pointless and wrong and not exist. Being pointless and wrong and non-existent made digging in all the more necessary in my mind. Let me assure you, I was very drunk and had perhaps swallowed pills and sniffed a crystalline powder. If my blood had been strictly pristine, none of this principal business would have applied. But I was on fire, and the moderation switch was fried out. No one had actually hit me yet. Once struck, I might go so far as to sacrifice my life to my ineffable code. My opponents couldn't help but see that depth of commitment. Day to day, I am mostly superficial, almost all pretense and straw bravado but an underlying, genuinely insane and volatile love of my own conception of personal dignity sometimes shows up. <laughs> In that way, I am like anybody else who is worth knowing. That's what made the cutouts hesitate. Still, they will conclude soon enough that four driven dullards always beats one inspired egotist, and they would do just that. <laughs> Nothing I could possibly say might switch them to my side. Even if words could diffuse their hostility, fuck those words. You're posers, I said. Fucking twat posers. <laughs> they wouldn't have been more stunned if I'd pissed in their mouths. <laughs> the truth can knock the gas out of anybody, but that pause wouldn't last. Alan, come on, leave them alone. Alan, get out of there. It was girl A and the wife arriving to derail my martyrdom. Look at these women, my rescuers, my scolders. The wife strode in reptilian pumps. Girl A elevated on needlepoints. One lady took me by each arm, undulating at my hip bones, hamming up the central aspects, disarming and infuriating anyone with an antipathy toward me. We're going home now, announced girl A, pulling me away, basically humping my leg, to home and to bed. The four penis neck cutouts liked me even less. What could they do? Jealous twats, I called. 
being led backward to Girl A's car. The Red Chinese, or whatever they were calling themselves, stared in hurt disbelief. I grabbed my crotch. Your hardcore anarchy swinging right here. <laughs> so that's like the, my most ego-driven like, part. There's two really ego-driven parts in this book. That's one of them. I am. Um, that story also like ends like as a disaster, just disastrously. <laughs> like that night, it's just like I, like the extent of the creep I am is completely revealed. <laughs> but you know we don't have to go into that here, right now. There's this. I'm gonna read like two more things. Like one's gonna be this last one will be short, and this one's a little like maybe longer. But this, um, a friend of mine read this book for me. He's a publicist and. He called me up, he said, this is really great and everything. And he goes, just, it's so fucking sad. It's just so sad. And I got, I got kind of bummed out because uh, I'm going for comedy here. You know? <laughs> I think the money's in comedy. So, so I looked through and I was like, what's so sad? And I found it. Like, this is the saddest story in the book. And then, unlike everything else I've read so far, I've kind of read the start and then left you hanging. This one I'm going to start toward the end and then go with the end. All right, so you can see that these stories actually do have conclusions. <laughs> so, so this one happened, it's, on, it's, it's Mother's Day 1978. Me and my wife are heading to the laundromat where the payphone is because our phone's been shut off and we're going to try and call our mothers. <clears throat> who, who haven't heard from us like in a year or two, you know. And... Uh, we run into this guy named Blank Frank. Blank Frank was in The Plugs. He was originally in a band called The Plugs. And he got kicked out, you know, which is, he might have been the first guy ever kicked out of a punk band. <laughs> he got kicked out because of drugs or because of what, he couldn't play or something. But he asked us, do we want to take a walk? And we took a walk. And we ended up in this guy, this kid named Jack, in the, his living room with Jack and Jack's mom. And so here we are. <clears throat> a woman sat, I'm going to take a drink of water. Because this one, this is a tough one. This is tough to get through. I tried to read this to my wife today and I, I almost broke myself into tears. I said, that fucking happens over there, I'm going to kill myself right in front of them all. <laughs> but I won't. <clears throat> okay. Here we go. A woman sat in a plush chair, perhaps the new chair that had replaced the busted one out in the garage. The woman was dark-haired, hyper, and subdued at once. She looked like she had learned to live holding her breath for a long time. Jack staggered in front of the woman in the chair, unsure if he was in greater danger of plunging on his face or flopping onto the back of his head. He and the woman seemed to have picked up on an ongoing conversation. You don't know that, yelled Jack. You don't know any of that. You don't know any of that. A mother knows. When you were a little boy coming through that door with your brother, your mother knew. The living room was pleasant enough. What could be seen of it? These people didn't place much stock in lamps. A sofa and an empty plush chair were slanted to face a TV stand. The only thing missing from the stand was the TV. <laughs> I'm guessing the globe from the absent TV screen had been counted on to provide the room's illumination. Tommy was still coughing, intermittently, impossible to ignore. Sit down, sit down, said Jack's mother. She told us to call her by name, something like Rosemary. Our family was raised better than to fight in front of guests. Sit. 
Tommy and I crowded into the, most remote, into the most remote corner of the sofa. Frank attempted to make the common civilities. Rosemary, these are my friends. Jack interrupted angrily. See, mother, Frank has friends, real friends. Tommy and I stared off at where the TV should be. My brother's friends shot him up and didn't bring him back. You don't know that, honey, said Rosemary. Why didn't they just tie a plastic bag over his face? That's not how it happened, said Frank. I told you already a hundred times. You weren't there. Jack revisited in anguish he'd stirred up at least a hundred times. How do you know what happened? What's happened has happened, said the mother. Even Jesus died. They could have saved him. Frank, you know they could have saved him. They parked the car and they ran. Frank accentuated his blankness and his quiet. Jack's dead brother could not be so blank and quiet as blank Frank. There was nothing anyone could do. All the fight surged out of Jack. Only his belief remained. Deflated, Jack sat on the empty TV stand. If you'd been there, you would have saved him. Frank leaned on the back of the empty plush chair. It was fine with me that the living room was dark. One of them, either Frank or Jack, was crying. If there had been something Tommy or I could say, things might have been less awkward. Even Jack's mother saw how unfair the situation was emotionally on Tommy and me. Is your name Tommy, said Jack's mother? Come over here, I want to show you something. The kid's mother switched on a table lamp next to her chair. Tommy got up and I wasn't about to be left alone. The table lamp put a new accent on the shadows around Rosemary. She pointed out the dead brother's high school portrait in a chrome frame on the table under the lamp. We couldn't make out the dead guy's features in the gloom. He wore a sport coat and a fat tie, and his hair covered his ears. He could be anyone we knew from high school. You could have been my son's friends. If he was here, you could be friends with him. She was right. Even in the shadows, you could see he was a guy we would be in a car with. The kind of guy who would OD in that car. The guy who would leave in that car once we'd parked it some distant, somewhere distant enough not to be traced back to us. I think we might have met him once, said Tommy. Tommy had taken the mother's hands in her own. The mother was glad somehow. Glad is another imperfect word. She was mostly pain under a smile. But she was touched. Literally touched by Tommy and touched that Frank had come over. Rosemary pulled herself out of her chair and stood facing Jack. She left the room. Tommy and I sank back down on the sofa, watching Jack, who sat where the TV would be. Jack's mother came back in. Maybe you never knew my son. She gave us big plastic tumblers of flat soda. You could have met him. The soda was undrinkable. We sipped it. Frank polished off his tumbler so he wouldn't give offense, give offense, so he wouldn't cause distress, so he would be the good guest. We said our goodbyes and we're back out on Selma Avenue. A sense of duty distinguished blank Frank from the rest of the friends who had failed to save the brother. Pancake makeup, needle-marked arms, selling sex, blank Frank was a man who paid his respects. Was the sense of duty from having been in the Navy? Or did he go into the Navy because he had a sense of duty? The Navy didn't feature much in Blank's conversation, which was, as stated, limited. We walked away together. Near the cruiser church, Frank split off from Tommy and me. Sometimes tricks pick me up because they just want to talk, he said, and some tricks just want to not talk. Tommy and I were only a few blocks from the Canterbury. 
We had enough money to buy a small bottle. Coming out of the liquor store, I slipped the bottle under my shirt and pictured, and pictured all my friends at the Canterbury who I was hiding it from. They were just kids for the most part. Some were actual children. A few might have known to hold Jack's mother's hand, but not many. I was happy I'd met Tommy. I was happy I was with her. There were things, important things, I sensed that she knew how to do. Then again, we'd both been unable to make our Mother's Day calls. So that's a sad one. So, congratulations. So now, I'm going to do one more. There's, there's a last quarter of the book. It's like, it's, it's like a, there's a long story, a road trip I took with Black Randy to San Francisco to try and buy speed. And we end up in this, uh, and that, that, that's cut up into like four different sections. There's shorter stories in between it. But the trip to San Francisco to buy speed, we ended up in a, uh, what do you call it, a pre-AIDS, south of Market Street, S&M bathhouse, <laughs> trying to buy drugs. And, and when you go in there, you, know, you go and they give you a key, and you go to your locker, and basically you, you wear a towel. You go in there with a towel. And, and the most anyone is wearing it is a towel. And, uh, but I, you know, I cut my underwear on because I'm a cheat. But, um, I just thought that it would be good to leave you with a little bit of titillation and sensationalism. <laughs> now, most of this section, you know, I would never read it in mixed company, but this is the PG-13 part, so I'm just going to go with that. So don't worry, you know. Don't worry much. Okay, here we go. So we're in there, right? We're in there. I'm in there. And uh, my face worked to deny that it was being exposed to anything it was unaccustomed to. <laughs> I kept Randy in sight within the crush of men cruising through the Warren. His bald head and shoe polished eyes were easy markers. Almost right away, Randy acted up. His every stance and movement were aggressive and confrontational. I wanted to shout, be cool, don't attract attention. <laughs> Each dangling, bulb, each dangling bulb set off a pool of bare light. A different singular flexing patron occupied the center of each of these light circles. Always an idealized specimen, the illuminated studs reigned as that section of corridors designated alpha of desire. My understanding of the protocol, gained after about 20 seconds of observation, was that the alphas summoned anyone they deemed worthy of contact. Rings of secondary icons surrounded the primary icons and buffered them from the approaches of mere mortals. Mere Randy refused to stand on protocol. He brushed past a protective circle of towel-flapping courtiers and cornered the most chiseled and aloof demigod in the place. Profile like a Roman coin, chest shellacked with man sweat, throbbing while at parade rest, a dangle like a radiator hose, this man's man was obviously the supreme icon of animals. He was unaccustomed to the direct approach. Unfazed by nicety and decorum, Randy went nose to nose with the Sun King. The king's face recoiled, lips curled in displeased incomprehension. Randy pushed his lopsided grin and boot black eyes forward. He was talking nonstop. The protective ring of towel bearers kept me beyond earshot. The animal's king gave the slightest sniff of his fingers, and a quartet of identical bronzed attendants stepped in like a muscle-bound curtain. Shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder flesh moved Randy in an impenetrable brush-off. One bronze attendant talked while he brushed. There was a warning I didn't need to hear to understand. One more uncool advance, and Randy would be cast forth from animals. Randy slunk off from the crown jewel. 
in the shadows between pools of light, he regrouped with himself. Regrouping for what? I sidled up. Randy, I saw all that with the sun god and all that. After an awkward moment, he recognized me. 86 from a glory hole, he cawed like a crow. Imagine my shame. <coughs> Randy, you seem to have lost sight of the mission. Mission? <laughs> to buy speed. He laughed in a maniacal way that seemed entirely unforced. He had become unhinged. <coughs> Again, I lost the sense that he knew who I was. He pushed off from the wall and shambled in with the cockwalk. <laughs> there you go. That's enough, right? <coughs> Maybe too much. Maybe one too many. So, uh, <coughs> does anyone have a question or whatever? You want to ask me about anything? You know, <coughs> anything. <laughs> You don't have to. <laughs> I'll ask a question. Uh-oh. How long did it take for you to finish your book? Uh, not that long, considering like it was 40 years in the making. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I guess what happened was I had a job and I got fired. And then I had unemployment. And so I, 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 I said, I'm going to take this unemployment. I'm going to think of this as a genius grant. Because <laughs> this will be as close as I get to one. you know. And I took that little genius grant and I wrote it in the year that I was unemployed. And then I got another job, and it kind of sat around. And I did. I, a friend of mine read it for me, and I met with her. And she was a former uh, development exec, and she just talked to me about it. And from talking to her, I, I wrote 18 pages of notes of what needed to happen. And then the next time I got fired, I implemented those notes <laughs> in about six weeks, and that's so it took about like a year and six weeks. <laughs> But a lot of prep, a lot of prep, because like I started uh, collecting these little anecdotes. Because like this experience, like it's not that like, I, I, this experience stayed with me. Like these four years really stayed with me. And I was, I had a little notebook. I would, like I'd think of this some event, a little anecdote, whatever. And I'd sketch it out in this notebook. And so like I had about a hundred of them when I started. So and I got it down to thirty-three or whatever. So. Tell you what. Last time you did angel dust. <laughs> Um, Jesus. Probably uh, 1980. Actually, I think it might be in here, like, like around 1980 or something. Yeah. I don't really miss it that much. <laughs> I don't have to get awkward, can I? You just cut it, right? All right. Oh, wait, Robert. Best records of the era that you're talking about. I don't really know. I mean, here's the thing. It's, it's so selective and everything. And my taste is like, uh, you know, it's, it's very much my own taste. And like everybody else's taste is their own taste. And I, I, it's like, like so one thing about the book is I don't really get into that. There's like this Screamers concert in the beginning. There's a, the Jams first show at the Whiskey, which we go to when we don't get to see because of, of untoward events. And then there's, at the end, there's a class show, secret show at the Roxy that we leave because it's a fucking hippie at a microphone. Excuse me. So, I mean, there's not a lot of music in it. You know what I mean? And then, but you kind of bring me to another thing. It's something that I realized recently is, like, um, 
people who have kind of a punk rock background, who spend a number of years there, or had some kind of depth in it, like they're very possessive of that experience. And, and they, like I know, this is the way I am. Like things that have come out like about this time, like I'm always like. I just dismiss them. You know, I, I don't even want to see it. You know, because I, I, I think that my experience was the one true experience. <laughs> and uh, I've realized that, like, like, I, like I'm get, what feeling I have now is like people really were in love with that with those, those times. And so it's like you become very possessive of this thing you love. And I look back at this book though, like, and I think that like I didn't consciously do it, but I'm not going to disturb anyone else's experience. Like I don't say, you know. I, I, don't, I don't like put anything else down. You know, I don't put down what came afterward. I recognize that, that that it was very meaningful to people involved with it, just as meaningful as this was to me. So it's kind of like, but thanks for asking that question because that's got me to get that out. Have you thoughts about God coming out of the coming out of the No, I mean it seems like it's was fun probably you know it's just I mean that kind of like whatever was in the goth like it was already it was already there just kind of like a through thing and it just kind of like morphed one way or another you know like you could like trace a goth back to Bowie like it all came out of Bowie in my there you go I was trying to avoid this but (laughs) everything's from Bowie you know Bowie is the root of it all anything that's that I that I like from, you know, including stuff from goth, whatever, you know, new weight, any of the stuff that I like, it's all, they all love Bowie, so. Uh, what's the most punk rock thing you've ever done? Oh, in the book? The most punk rock thing I've ever done is in this book. <laughs> When, when the Congress was, was getting ready to impeach Bill Clinton, I was working for Larry Flint, and we pulled a little scam, and we got the Speaker of the House to resign because he thought we were going to expose him on a sex thing, and we had no evidence. We bluffed that fucker out of office, and he resigned the very same day that Clinton was impeached. So the New York Times and the Washington Post said, Clinton impeached, Livingston resigns. In my mind, I mean, I don't know anyone who's done anything more punk rock than that. So <laughs> That's it. And thanks a lot, everybody. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.